Thanks, Brooke. Well, good morning, church. My name is Andrew, one of the pastors here. We're going to keep going with 1 Corinthians this morning. If you've been here for the last few months, you know we're studying this letter from the Apostle Paul to the church 2,000 years ago in Corinth. And so today we're going to do chapter 5, verse 11, through chapter 6, verse 11. So I'm going to ask that you stand and follow along as I read this passage. You're going to see a few hot topic words in this passage related to sexuality. We're not going to talk about that today, but starting next week, we're going to be in that for some weeks to come. Just so, so those of you who are super eager to talk about human sexuality, it's coming. It's not today. It starts next week, and then it's going to go for about a month and a half. So just hang in there with me. Let's get this passage in our minds today. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 11. The Apostle Paul writes to the church in Corinth. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more, then, matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers? To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud, even your own brothers. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Lord Jesus, I pray that we would embrace this new identity this morning. Those who have been washed, those who have been sanctified, those who have been justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of you, God. Lord, as we engage some deep topics, some, uh, some realities that relate to each one of us, Lord, may we not be identified by the impulses and the failures of our flesh, but by the new identity that we have through your spirit. And may we fan into flame in each other godliness for your glory, for the good of those who we do life with and the advancement of your gospel, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may have a seat. I need your help for a minute here. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to show you a few pictures, and if you think it's good, raise your hand and shout out good. If you think it's bad, raise your hand and shout out bad. We'll start with good, then we'll move to bad. Good or bad? Good? Bad? There's one bad. 
Like, and I'm talking flavor here, not nutrition. Flavor. Bad? Okay, a few bads. There were a few kids in the first service, and they all said bad, and all the adults said good. So it just goes to show you that over time, we can grow, right? Good or bad? Good? Bad. Okay, split? Oh, no. Whoops, oh, I gave it away. Good or bad? Good or bad? (laughs) All depends on your perspective, right? Where you're from, what you think. How about this, good or bad? Good? Anyone think camping's bad? You're embarrassed to say it, aren't you? Some of you do. I know some people who don't like camping. The scenery is amazing, but the experience of sleeping on the ground, some people find that pretty bad. And again, this one, we, you know, it depends on where you're from. Let's just, just to be clear, if you think this is good, say good and put your hand up nice and high. A few of you. Yeah, you're minorities. You're in Minnesota. If you think it's bad, put your hand up nice and high. If you don't care, put your hand up nice and high. Amen. You're my people. I'm a baseball guy. Who cares about football? This exercise and this point is to just remind us that all of us make judgments all the time. Making judgments is a core part of life. You cannot live life without making judgments. Some of them are like inconsequential and unimportant. Like at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter what you think about the Packers, right? And what you think about the Packers is influenced by where you live, where you grew up, the circles that you run in. Are you trying to prove Vikings fans wrong or are you trying to, you know, are you from Minnesota, whatever. It, it, it all depends. There's many things in life that we make judgments off based off of culture, based off of experience, based off of opinion, based off of like nurture, the way that you were grown, probably broccoli, spam, camping, packers, those judgments all relate to different factors in our life. And, and with any of those things, there's not necessarily a right or a wrong based off of your opinion, right? Like, it's verifiable that broccoli is nutritionally good, but, but taste, it's, it's up for debate. It's verifiable that spam is nutritionally bad, but as far as if you like it or not, that's kind of up to your own opinion. It's verifiable that the Packers are actually better than the Vikings. Just look at the records over the years. But whether you like them or not is, is up for debate. It doesn't really matter. But this whole point is to remind us that life is filled with judgment. We just can't get away from making judgments in life. And Paul is dealing with judgment in this text today. The big idea for our passage today is that authentic community requires true judgment. The church is to be a place of authentic community. We talk a lot about Park Community Church being a family because biblically, through Scripture, God refers to the church as the family of God, the bride of Christ. That when we come to faith through Jesus Christ, we're adopted and our status, our identity becomes sons and daughters of God, brothers and sisters of one another, and neighbors and witnesses to the world. And so when you enter the faith, you become a part of a church family, a church community that needs to be built on authenticity. But in order for us to have an authentic community, we just have to make judgments. But they need to be true judgments, right? This is just reality in life. And and so in this culture, and really any culture, I think it it, it feels bad and wrong sometimes to make judgment or to pass judgment. Right? I mean, we want the church to be a loving, accepting place. One of the major knocks on the church in our cultural moment is that it's judgmental. And God is loving. God is forgiving. So why isn't the church loving? Why isn't the church forgiving? I don't want to go to a judgmental church. I don't want to be judged. Right? This is, you hear this often. This is the cultural air that we breathe in. And some of us have been hurt by churches that have judged us. 
And so that's, that's all true, and there's a time and a place to talk about that, but also what I want to remind us of and what Scripture is calling us to here this morning is that there is actually a right, a good, and a holy judgment that we have to make towards one another in order to be an authentic, holy community before God. Just the same way that you have to make a judgment every day. Do you shovel before you come to church or after you go to church? Do you brush your teeth or not? Do you, you know, you have to make judgment calls, good and bad, every single day. In the same way, we have to make judgment calls in the church about what is good and what is bad. And that's what Paul's dealing with. Before we get deeper into what Paul has just written, I want to give you a quick biblical overview of just biblical judgment, like this idea of judgment in the scriptures. And this isn't exhaustive, it's just a quick overview. So it starts really with Genesis 1, 2, and 3, right? God declares what is good and evil. And if you are a Christian, this is our lens, this is our worldview. If you're not a Christian, if you're curious about Christianity and checking this out, you should know that a Christian worldview is that God is the judge of good and evil. He's the one who decides. And in Genesis 1 and 2, he created all things. He spoke it into being, whether that be over six literal days or over millions of years. Don't know, don't care. We don't need to get into the mechanics. There's God-fearing people who believe different things about how God created the world. But what we believe is that God spoke the world into being and he said, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good. He created man and woman to be together and it's good and it's good and it's good. God declared what was good. In Genesis chapter 3, sin enters the world and Adam and Eve taste what is bad, what is evil, what is wrong. God had given them the whole world and all of his creation to enjoy, except for one thing. He had one prohibition, don't eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, because all Adam and Eve knew was good. And there was evil in the world, but God wanted to shelter them from evil so that all that they experienced was good. But they chose to eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and then they were able to experience evil. God declared what was good and evil, and and humanity has experienced evil because of our own decision, our own choice to engage evil. So that's where good and evil starts. That's, that's, That's who decides good and evil. It's God. And throughout the Old Testament and into the New Testament, some of these other categories for biblical judgment in Exodus chapter 18, Moses led the people of Israel out of Egypt, the people of God. He's leading them out of slavery in Egypt and towards the promised land. And on their journey in Exodus chapter 18, there's this community of people camping together in the wilderness for years. Could you imagine the kind of conflicts that come up? If you've ever gone camping with your family or with a group of friends, there's some conflicts that come up. Imagine multiplying that small group that you went camping with by millions of people in a desert for many, 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 many years. Tons of conflict. This this battle over what's right and wrong, over what's good and evil. And Moses, as their leader, was making judgments about what is good and what is bad, what is right, what is wrong. And he was worn out by it. He was burnt out by it. So his father-in-law in Exodus chapter 18 called him to, to raise up chiefs over different tribes to help make a decision about what is good and what is bad, what is right, what is wrong, what is good, what is evil. And so 
In the context of the community of God, there were people, Moses and the chiefs, over these tribes of hundreds and over hundreds and then over tens, making judgments, having to decide that's good, that's bad, that's right, that's wrong, that's allowable, that's not allowable. That's how their community functioned. Somebody had to make a judgment. And then God defines, further defines good and evil in Exodus chapter 20. Moses comes up onto the mountain of Sinai and God speaks the law, declaring what is good and evil and writes Ten Commandments onto tablets of stone, saying, here's an ethic of good. Here's a standard of good for my community. This is what you are to, 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 in, to, to line your life up with, this standard of good. 613 laws in the Old Testament, all related to good and evil, right and wrong, what's acceptable, what's unacceptable. These 613 laws related to moral things, civil things, and ceremonial things. God telling his people, here's what's allowed, here's what's not allowed. Related to your moral ethics, related to the civil interactions with one another, and the ceremonial worship of God. Here's, here's what you can do, here's what you can't do in those realms. God giving them this judgment of good and evil. And as you go through the Old Testament, the prophets, the priests, and the kings called God's people to make true judgments. There's two passages there, which will give you just a quick little shot at this. I'm not going to go to them today, but if you want to write that down and go look at those later, Zechariah chapter 7, 9 through 10, and 8, 16 shows God calling his people to make true judgments, good judgments, right judgments. Jesus himself called his followers to make true judgments. In John chapter 7, verse 24, he says, Do not judge by appearance, but with right judgment. Do not judge by appearance. Don't judge a book by its cover. Don't judge a person by, by the external. Get to know them. Get to know their heart. Get to know the real situation. Make a true, honest, right, good judgment. In, in Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 5, famously quoted passage of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, he says, judge not. People love that part, right? Well, Jesus said, judge not. But in context, if you go on to read it, he says, judge not, lest you be judged. For the way that you judge others is the same way that you will be judged. He's actually not telling us to not make a judgment or not to make discernment between good and bad. Jesus taught over and over again, here's what's good, here's what's bad, here's what's right, here's what's wrong, here's what you should do, here's what you shouldn't do. Make a judgment between good and bad and line your life up with good and reject bad. That's what Jesus teaches. And then Paul, in our passage for today, he called the church to judge one another just plain and clearly. Look at verse 12. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? I love this. He's saying, church, it's not your job to judge non-Christians. Why, why would you expect non-Christians to, to submit their lives to your authority? If, if you are ascribing to be a Jesus follower, Jesus has given you a standard of good and bad, right and wrong. It's his word, and it's your ethic it's not a person who hasn't said, yes, I want to submit my life to this authority. It's not their ethic. So what have you to do with judging them? This is your ethic. And so he says, for, for what do we have to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. 
Again, seems very harsh, doesn't it? And if you missed the sermon last week, go back and listen to that because we talked more about this and how it's good and loving and right for God to have a holy and a high standard and to call us up into it in unity, in love, in grace. And so that's, that's kind of the context here, this, this history of biblical judgment. And now we're going to land in on what Paul is teaching us here about judging the insiders and what it looks like to build an authentic community of true judgment and how we do this. And so there's three big questions that I have as I, as I consider that. Like Paul just said, is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? Yes, he did. And so when he writes that, my, my mind goes to three things. When, why, and how? Why should we judge one another inside the church? When should we judge one another inside the church? And how should we judge one another inside the church? Because you and I both know if we get this wrong, it does incredible damage, right? It causes distance and division, and it pushes people further away from God than it does drawing them into God and his family, his community. So these questions are incredibly important as we seek to apply what Paul is teaching here. And so that's, that's where we're going. That's what we're going to ask. As I ask these questions, you need to know that as we move into chapter 6, he's dealing with lawsuits in the church family. So there's people who are suing each other. They're Christian brothers and sisters in the faith, and they're bringing each other to court, suing each other taking advantage of each other. Oftentimes it was the, the rich taking advantage of the poor or it was like two people of means warring against each other bringing it to the courts. Last time I checked, there's not a ton of lawsuits going back and forth against each other in our church family. So the direct application of this, it, it, it's, it's not as specific as like next week when we talk about sexual identity. I mean, these weeks are coming where we talk about all things related to sex, to marriage, to divorce, to singleness. And so there's going to be direct application for that. As we think about lawsuits in the church, the, the temptation for some people is to skip over this because, well, I've never been sued by somebody in my church and I'm, I've never sued anyone in my church and I don't imagine that scenario. Right? That's kind of what's on the surface here that Paul's dealing with. But underneath the surface is this reality of judgment that in a holy community, there has to be judgment passed. That in order to build an authentic community, we have to make true judgments. And so Paul is teaching us that deeper truth, dealing with a surface issue here where they are actually bringing one another to court because they can't settle their disputes with one another. And so let's talk about why we should judge one another inside the church. There's four reasons from this text. There's probably more existentially, but four here in this passage. The first one is that a community of sincerity and truth requires it. Second, the Bible calls for it. Third, we are equipped and capable to do it. And fourth is to protect and project unity. First one, a community of sincerity and truth requires it. This was all about the sermon last week, right? Last week was titled, A Community of Sincerity and Truth. If you go back to verse 8 of chapter 5, Paul says, Let us therefore celebrate the festival, that's the festival of unleavened bread, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, 
but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. And just a quick reminder for those of you who missed last week, he, he's, he's, he's looking back to the festival of, uh, uh, festival of unleavened bread when the people of God would remember being delivered out of Egypt when God told them to take unleavened bread, it was easy to pack, easy to travel. You didn't have to worry about it spoiling or getting smushed. So for their traveling journey, and it made sense to have unleavened bread, but also it was a spiritual imagery thing. Yeast throughout the Bible, or leaven throughout the Bible, represents sin. It's not a sin to eat bread with yeast in it. It just represented sin. And so when God told them to, to, to leave Egypt with unleavened bread, it was this communication that I want you to be like a pure community without sin. I care about you practically. This is easier to pack and travel with. And I care about you spiritually. I want, you, I want sin to be ridded from this community. I want you to be a holy community. And so he's reminding them in chapter 5 that, that they gather around Jesus, the one who had no sin, that he is their unleavened bread. And he's saying the church is to be a place of, as it says at the end of verse 8, sincerity and truth. And the only way you can have a community of sincerity and truth is, is if we make a judgment between what is right and what is wrong. This word sincerity, it can also mean purity. It just means like honesty, like what you say is what you do. It means cleansed of wrong, cleansed of evil. Truth, it means absolute truth, like there is a standard. We live in a very subjective culture where, where, where our culture and even our flesh likes to tell us that, that right and wrong is fluid, based off of our own experience, our own perspective, our own opinions. But that's not what the Bible teaches. Again, if you're a Christian, this is a, hopefully a reminder for you. If you're curious about Christianity, this is something that you need to know. We don't make our own rules within Christianity. We have a standard of right and wrong. There is a truth. It's what God declares to be right and wrong. And the goal of a Christian in the Christian church is to come underneath submission to God, what he has said is right and wrong. There's different interpretations and different applications, and we will spend our entire life doing that, right? Like, God has a standard of truth, and, and, and we're striving in humility to, to, in humility to interpret and apply what is right and wrong. And that takes work, and sometimes we get that wrong, and that's why people have been so hurt, but that is part of the reason why we need to make judgments in the church, because God is building a community of sincerity and truth. And it requires making a judgment call. This is right, that is wrong. You're out of line, you're in line. Secondly, the Bible calls for it. I mean, it's just here, right? Paul says, is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? Verse 1 of chapter 6, he says, when, you, when one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Saying, when you have a grievance with one another, when you have a conflict, when you're at war with one another, bring it to the saints, to the people of God. He has taught us earlier in this letter that the people of God have the Spirit of God in them, and the Spirit of God is able to discern things and make judgments that people void of the Spirit of God, are not able to make. And so the Bible calls the church to judge itself and to judge one another against the, the code of conduct that God gives us. 
Not based off of our opinions, based off of our perspectives, based off of our feelings, our shifting feelings of what feels right and wrong, but based off of a standard of truth that, that, that supersedes our feelings and doesn't change. The Bible calls for us to judge one another. We're equipped and capable to do so. Look at verses 2 through 5 of chapter 6. He says, Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? So he's saying, rather than going to the court of law among non-believers and pagans where the Spirit of God isn't present, bring your issues to the church where the Spirit of God is present. And then he says, do you not know that the saints will judge the world? There will come a day when the people of God rule over the world and make a judgment over the world of what's good and bad. Remember, now is not the time. Paul just said in chapter 5 verse 12 that what do we have to do with judging the outsiders what do we have to do with judging the world now but there will come a day when everything is revealed when everything is in the light where there's no more interpretation or speculation about what is right and wrong everything is seen and known and at that point those who are in Christ will make a judgment about the world and if the world is to be judged by you are you incompetent to try trivial cases see what Paul's saying there if you have the wisdom and the Spirit of God to judge what's right and wrong in the world, you ought to be able to judge what's right and wrong in the community. You have the same standard. You have the same bar of truth. You ought to be able to judge one another based off of that bar of truth. He says, do you not know that we are to judge angels? The Bible teaches us that, that human beings, man and woman, created in the image of God with the breath of God, are higher than the angels. And there will come a day where we sit in judgment and we rule over the angels. And he says, how much more then matters pertaining to this life? That just makes sense, right? Like if you're to judge the world and you're to judge the angels, you better be able to figure out how to rightly judge and assess one another and to work out your conflicts. You have the same standard of good and bad that should be a, a, a pathway for you to solve conflict with one another. We're capable of doing this. And then the last reason that we're to judge one another based off of this passage is to protect and project unity. He kind of starts with that in verse 1, right? He says, why do you bring this to the, to the law courts, to the unrighteous instead of the saints? And then verse 6, he says, but brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers? To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud, even your own brothers. He's saying that when you bring your disputes out into the world, specifically to them, when they were bringing these disputes to the courts of law, they are communicating to the pagan, non-believing judges and court systems that Christians can't get along. And one of Jesus' most important teachings, one of, his, one of his theological cores was that of unity. Remember, Jesus in John 13 said that the world will know you are my disciples when you love one another. And when you guys can't figure out your arguments and you bring it to court and you sue one another in court, you're not giving a testimony to the world about the unity that Jesus has bought for the church. And so solve this, protect your unity, and it's not just about protecting unity, it's also about projecting unity. And some, I think usually in our culture, projecting something is bad, right? It's like we try to project self-importance or self-relevance, but in this case, it's a, it's a good thing to project unity. 
like a projector screen throws an image so that more people could see it. Our ability to solve our conflicts with one another, to get right with one another, to not take advantage of one another, it projects unity to the world that desperately needs unity. And Paul, in fact, says here, in verse 7, he says, Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? He's saying, rather than trying to nickel and dime your brother or sister in Christ, rather than using them to get ahead or, or fighting over a dispute or fighting over land or fighting over a business dissolution, dissolution whatever, dissolving a business, and like getting very specific on it and trying to take advantage of one another, it's actually better for you to be taken advantage of than to break the unity that God has worked so hard to build. Why not rather suffer wrong? If you feel like you've been wronged, there's a call to forgive and move on. Why not rather be defrauded? If you feel like you've been defrauded, why not forgive and move on? There's this ethic in the church that we are to value unity. We protect and we project unity, and that's why we stay out of the court system. But it's important for us to pause there and say, well, when should we judge one another inside the church, right? Because Paul is actually giving us some categories for when to keep it in-house. I want you to hear this just because of the cultural moment that we live in, that there are times that Christians ought to bring issues out of the church and into the court system. In Romans chapter 13, Paul also teaches us that God gives us our governing authorities. And we're, sub- we're to submit to them and to surrender to them. There are some legal experts outside of the church that ought to be consulted on legal matters, on, on criminal matters, right? When we live in a culture where there's been abuse in the church and scandal in the church, Paul wouldn't tell the church to handle that in-house. That's been, been done far too often in churches, where there's allegations of abuse and hurt and wrong or embezzlement, whatever it is, fill in your abuse. Abuse of money, sexual abuse, verbal abuse, physical abuse in churches. And churches sometimes misapply this and say, no, we need to handle it in-house. Paul's not telling us to do that. If it's, if it's a serious matter of legal or criminal offense, that's a different conversation. Paul is telling us, he's giving the church this category that we should judge one another inside the church in matters of biblical morality and trivial matters. Right? So this entire context of 1 Corinthians 5 and 6 has to do with biblical morality. It has to do with the ethic of following Jesus. God's standard of what's right and wrong. Treatment of people and worship, right? 613 laws in the Old Testament, they were moral laws, They were civil laws, and they were ceremonial laws. So the church has jurisdiction with one another in in matters related to our faith, right? And the church also has jurisdiction with one another in trivial matters. This is like small claims court or civil court. That's what he tells us in verse 2. And if if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try civil cases? Saying, if there's, if there's a relational matter, work it out with one another. Work it out with the church. Make a judgment between good and bad and don't drag it to the courts. The church's realm is moral, spiritual, relational, right? 
He uses the word trivial. That doesn't mean that moral, spiritual, and relational are less trivial, but they're just, they're handleable. Is that a word? can be a word now. They're handleable by the people of God because their nature is to be dealt with in a relational way, not a legal or a criminal way. And I want to give you a little context for this. Look at Acts chapter 18 with me. If you were here when we started this sermon series on the book of 1 Corinthians, you remember that Acts 18 is Paul in Corinth starting this church. And so in Acts 18, Paul is in this city. He's proclaiming the gospel. People are coming to know Jesus. The church is being planted. And there's a conflict that breaks out. Look at chapter 18, verse 12. It says, But when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal. They brought him before the courts. Saying, this man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Galileo said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of question about words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of those things. See what's happening here? In the very beginning of this church, which Paul writes this letter to years later about judgment, judging one another rather than being judged by the world or the courts, he's, he's saying that in matters related to theology, to biblical morality, to relational things in your church family, deal with that yourselves. That's your jurisdiction. You have a responsibility to God and to one another to handle your conflicts. But if it's a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, then I would have reason to get involved. So, so that's the category for Christians. We're not, we're not our own court on everything. We're our own court on things that apply to spirituality, to relational health, to, to, to applying the things of God to one another. That's what we're called to do. We are called to be an authentic community pursuing the ways of Jesus together. And in order to do that, we have to humbly, together, try and understand what God's standard is. What is the code of conduct for this community? And we need to, in humility and in grace, call one another to a higher standard. In my family, Brittany and I are constantly trying to teach our kids how we operate in our family. What are our values? What are our do's? What are our don'ts? We don't push each other. We don't call each other names. We don't yell at each other. Now, in our flesh, these things happen. You've seen my kids. They've got their own minds and their own, they do their thing, right? But we're constantly trying to say, here's the bar. The, the relational standard, the, the moral, the ethic of the Peterson family. Here's, here's how we act. And we're calling them up to that. And they call us to that as well. I don't know how many times I lost my temper with my kids. And Avery, just the other day, <laughs> Just the other day, she was, she was getting in trouble, doing something, making everybody in the family frustrated. And she said, can't anyone give me a little grace? She was calling us up because one of the values of our family is to be, to be extenders of grace. And so she called me and Brittany out. Can't you give me some grace? Yes, we're supposed to be gracious. Also, you're supposed to be obedient, but... Right? And so this is, this is the... The place where we are supposed to experience God's good, absent of evil. That's why this passage here 
in chapter 5, verse 11, and chapter 6, verse 9 and 10, calls out sexual immorality, greed, idolatry, reviling, drunkards, swindlers, idolaters, the practice of homosexuality. He's saying there's a standard of good, and I'm calling this community to authentically live out what is good. This ought to be a safe place absent of what is bad, and so we need to know the truth, call out what the standard is, what, set the bar, and then call one another to that in love, in grace. That's where we judge one another, related to our spiritual ethic, our moral ethic, our application of Scripture. And then the last question is, how should we judge one another inside the church? I mean, it's just, it's clear that we're supposed to, based off of this passage. How do we do it? Because this has been done really poorly. I've already mentioned this, but if we don't do it right, it further pushes people from God rather than drawing them into God, right? It further pushes people from community rather than drawing them into community. And so the way that we're to judge one another in the church is the same way that God has judged us. In Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 5, again, Jesus taught us to judge others to judge not lest we be judged, for in the same way that we judge others is how we will be judged. So the question is, how do you want to be judged? He, he says, take the, take the log out of your own eye before you address the speck in your brother or your sister's eye. How do you want to be judged? If we're in Christ, we ought to welcome being judged by God's standard of holiness, not our fleshly impulses. And so we judge one another the same way that God judges us. Jesus taught us against discrimination. In Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 5, Jesus is teaching us to use discernment throughout all of Jesus' teaching, like in John 7, when he says, don't judge by the appearance, but make a true judgment. He's teaching his followers to use discernment between good and bad. He's, he's teaching them to use discernment, and he's teaching them not to make discrimination based off of the outward appearance and, and assumptions and worldly judgments, but to dig deeper and make spiritual, biblical judgments. And then here in chapter 6, verse 11, we're going to anchor to this verse for the coming weeks. I'm going to pick it up in verse 9 at the end of chapter 6. Remember, this is coming out of judging one another, making wrong judgments of one another, God wanting this to be a community of unity, of sincerity and truth. And he says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And in this room, we have guilty, 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 guilty. Which one of us in our, in our flesh, in our past, and maybe in our present, isn't struggling with elements of these things? And so we've fallen short of the moral, ethical, biblical, spiritual standard that God has set. Right? We have fallen short. Idolatry is simply worshiping anything more than God your creator. I'm guilty of that this morning. 
fallen short of this standard that God has set. And I need brothers and sisters to call me up to that standard and to say, keep going, brother, keep going, keep pursuing holiness. But here's the ultimate judgment that we have from God in Jesus Christ that you and I need to extend to one another in verse 11. He says, and such were some of you, sexually immoral, idolaters, adulterers, greedy, thieves, drunkards, revilers, swindlers, such were some of you, past tense. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. In Jesus Christ, you have been judged as holy. And so, in the church of Jesus Christ, those who have surrendered their lives to Jesus Christ, we judge one another as holy. And so we call each other to live out this life of holiness for the glory of God, the good of those who we do life with, and the advancement of his gospel. Amen? That's why we need to judge one another. We need to judge one another by saying, this is who you really are. This is your new identity. You've been washed. You've been sanctified. You've been justified. Let's keep pursuing that identity together. We have it. It's ours. Let's keep living it out. And so every week when we gather at Park Community Church, we gather around Jesus, the one who has washed us, the one who has sanctified us, and the one who has justified us, made us right before God. If your desire is to walk with Jesus, the communion elements are there for you in the pew in front of you. Pull out the wafer on the top layer. And take communion with me. The Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. Pull out that wafer on the top. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. Break it. And he said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's take it together. In the same way, also, he took the cup. Go ahead and peel that next layer off. After supper, and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's drink together. Jesus, I thank you that you were judged a sinner so that we might be judged as righteous. I thank you that you submitted to the penalty that we deserve. Lord, may we have the humility, and then may we be empowered through your Spirit to pursue holiness. To, to surrender to what you declare as good and bad and to together in humility and grace and joy live out our new identity as those who have been washed, those who have been sanctified, those who have been justified. 
Lord Jesus, we thank you for, hold, for making us new and for not holding our sins against us. We love you, Lord. Amen.